0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: In order to feel like I'm bringing my true self to work now, I mean, it means I don't have to think about it. So it just takes away that mental load.
0: This is Ryan Phillips, a proud trans man from Western Australia, now living and working in Melbourne.
1: So it's almost like now it's the absence Potentially a sense of shame or a sense that someone's gonna find out about me or you know I'm pretending having to create, you know, a sense of self which isn't quite right. So all of that takes effort.
0: So what helps people like Ryan bring their true and authentic selves to work?
1: So I think what makes a workplace inclusive is at the outset kind of leadership at the top and the visibility of that leadership. I mean I think you know, one of the things you know, that I feel like I've never had but looking at other visible trans leaders, you know, executives in the public service, what that could have meant. You know, I'd always been deeply fearful uh, in my um, in the early days of my career when I was a kind of private sector lawyer about what transition would mean. I figured that would be the end of my career because when you look around, who, can you, who else can you see? Um, and if you can't see anybody, you can't see what's possible.
0: Hello. I'm Lisa Leong and welcome to This Working Life. Today we're diving into what workplace inclusion looks like for the LGBTIQ community from equitable design to office small talk. I've got a panel of guests to explore this with. First up is Anna Brown.
2: I'm the CEO of Equality Australia, a national organisation dedicated to achieving equality for LGBTIQ plus people. I'm also part of the LGBTIQ plus community myself and use she, her pronouns.
0: Before we dive into inclusivity at work and recent trends in that area, it'd be great to get a general understanding of the LGBTIQ plus community in Australia Anna, do we have an estimate of the number of people in Australia who identify as LGBTIQ+.
2: Well, Lisa, you've touched on one of our other areas of work for Equality Australia, which is the, sadly, we don't collect sufficient data on our communities. In our national census, it's something that we're working on, and I'm really hopeful of change in this area. We do have some data and some studies out there that are much more limited or from overseas, so... We think, for instance, there's probably, you know, some data would suggest three to 5% of the population are lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Um, We're looking at much smaller numbers for trans and gender diverse people, more like 0.5 to 1.2%. And for intersex people, the estimate that's generally talked about is 1.7% of the population. But again, we're talking about 86 different variations there and lots of different sort of subpopulation groups. So that's the broad picture. Um, but we're definitely out there in the community and obviously part of workplaces across Australia.
0: The percentage of this community who are out at work has dropped since the pandemic started. Jennifer Westercott has the numbers. Well, I'm the Chief
3: Executive of the Business Council of Australia, the Chancellor of Western Sydney University and the co-patron of Pride and Diversity and part of the LGBTQ. So our, our work from the index data showed that only 59% of people were out at work, and that was down from 67% pre-COVID. So that tells you that the virtual environment was very challenging for people, as you would expect it to be, because you you need a level of trust. So that's something that we're going to work on now that we're sort of returning to more workplace settings. Having said that, many people are still working in hybrid working models. So the question then becomes, what's the training? What's the policy settings that allow people to be out at work when, in fact, You know, there are some places where 95% of people are going to work from
0: home. So I think we've got, as Pride and Diversity, some work to do there. And there's also a lack of true numbers of representation for the LGBTIQ plus Aboriginal
4: community. That's the lack of data. It's the lack of purposeful data, but it's also the lack of incidental data.
0: That's Shane Sturgis.
4: CEO for Black Aboriginal Corporation, proud gay gun-and-gutter, Nadego man from New South Wales. The reason why black exists is to create that intersectionality service provision because before black it was, you had to choose your identity to get services provided to you. So you had to either choose whether you're going to go down a cultural identity to get Aboriginal services or you're going to go down your queer identity to get LGBTIQ services. And you, when you're bringing that into the workplace, you need to be very mindful because of the elements of the discrimination on both counts of culture and queerness um, exists. So it, it's like a double-edged sword. You can't talk about really anything. So like the level of data for that cohort of people just is non-existent.
0: And so, Shane, tell me about how Black is trying to improve this.
4: For us, it's about... Education. It's about self-determination. It's about empowering our communities, making them feel safe, making them feel comfortable. It's about creating, you know, safe spaces and safer communities because, you know, you're not just queer and black when you're at home. Like, the minute you walk out your door and your home is your safe space, you need to feel space from the minute you shut that front door behind you. Um, And that's what black aims to do, is provide that level of comfort and safety and assurance for our mob that, You know, it's not just, you know, at this event you can go and be in this space and that's a comfortable, safe space for you to be. We want to advocate and start pushing the envelope about it needs to broaden. Like our communities need to feel safe in every aspect of their life and in everything that they do.
0: So, how can we improve this and get real numbers and representations for the rainbow community? Aubrey Blanche has an idea. She works in equitable design.
5: I am the senior director of people operations and strategic programs at Culture Amp. Um, really proud mixed race uh, queer woman. Aubrey, from a data
0: collection perspective, what are your reflections on the best way to get this type of data?
5: I think there's often a lack of governmental rigor around this data and so that inhibits employers from collecting this data in a way. I can speak to the challenge at CultureAmp globally is that the government tends to think of gender in a very binary construct, which doesn't actually map onto how humans are. And so CultureAmp solves that problem of inclusivity by actually doing double data collection. So we collect data on someone's gender according to the government, and then provide a more expansive set of options. Um, And we as a company only use those more expansive options in order to accurately reflect our workforce. So that's one way that we can start collecting that data and normalizing it. But I think there's something subtle about data collection that I heard kind of underlying what Anna and Jennifer were saying is that The way that we collect data in many ways legitimizes and normalizes the existence of experiences that are already there. And so the way that we collect data is actually a value statement about who matters and who is seen as real and valid in the world.
2: We really have to be careful about the way we collect data. Not only should we collect it, but obviously um, explain the reasons for it. And often those are very beneficial reasons that mean that we want to track progress and indeed. Um, how we are realising more equality and less discrimination for our communities or indeed more equality for women or racial minorities. And also data collection should be uh, not mandatory, but voluntary as well. So when employers are asking these sorts of questions around demographic data of workforces, making it clear that this is not something that's compulsory is important too, and explaining exactly why. Um, That data is so important, as well as sending the message, as Aubrey said, that we do care about these population groups. That's exactly why we're collecting the data.
0: Can anyone share their personal experience of coming out at work and whether it was a good thing that happened and what happened there?
4: It wasn't even really coming out at work. For me, I was already out. I was in a relationship and I was actually told by my direct boss not to speak about my personal life because homosexuality was not accepted within that organisation so for me my work life was absolutely horrific it was me having just identified myself and coming out of a heterosexual marriage and relationship to then be told that i couldn't be my true self was quite disturbing
0: what was your reaction to that what did you say
4: Ideally, I was young and I was like, okay, sure, if that's the rules, that's the rules. You know, I don't want to be a rule breaker. But um, I didn't last there very long because it wasn't a good fit for me.
0: And does anyone have a story to share about what would have helped in a situation like that? So a conversation with your manager. Well, in my case, I'm
3: obviously much older than everyone on the call. And so I just didn't talk about it. But what would have helped was somebody asking you what you did on the weekend. So most people kind of knew that I was in a relationship with a woman, and the same woman I've been in a relationship with for 37 years, And but no one ever asked you what you did on the weekend. No one ever asked her name, no one ever invited her to test to anything. But it was just so weird that people would have these conversations around you, talk about what they did on the weekend, talk about their partners openly, and it would have just helped. And I always encourage people to ask people what they did on the weekend. How's Tess? And when I got to KPMG years later, and the first thing the chairman said to me, now your partner's name is Tess, please make sure she comes to the next partner's function. And that just was incredibly helpful. So I think normalizing things in normal conversations would be very helpful.
2: Yeah, well, I remember being asked that question, what did you do on the weekend? And sort of being filled with dread when I wasn't out at work, when I was a baby lawyer back in a corporate firm quite some time ago now, because it was all what I always used general terms like my friend and use gender neutral pronouns but once I had come out and for me it really took a move to Sydney and feeling more comfortable sort of making a fresh start and I was working in a firm where in Sydney a lot of the partners were there was some quite a few gay male partners and that made all the difference there weren't any women something which just changed now but you know having those role models was really important.
0: Anna I want you to build on this so let's talk about the steps that workplaces can take to not just employ diverse people, but to actually keep them and to create a sense of belonging.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the first thing I'd say is all of the wonderful work that Jennifer and the people at Pride Diversity do is so crucial to this inclusion journey that many employers are on. So getting acquainted with all of the resources that are out there, including from groups like the Diversity Council, particularly the programs at Pride and Diversity, is a really good way of making sure that your organisation is taking all the right steps. Some of those steps include obviously training and getting your workforce in a space together where they learn more about all of the different parts of the LGBTIQ plus community and how they can be a better ally and show their support internally and also outside in the real world. Policies and procedures, that's obviously a really key part of making sure that you don't make assumptions about people's partners, the sexuality of anyone in your team, the gender history of anyone in your organisation, making sure that trans and gender diverse people have policies that support their gender affirmation. And that's a journey we've seen some really big corporates come out with welcome policies that support Gender transition or affirmation leave in particular, but that's a whole it's a whole process. So even simple things like uh, you know making sure that bathrooms and change facilities uh, accommodate gender diverse people as well, uh, and they're all areas of advice that again, Pride and Diversity are the experts at and really excel at. So those are just some of the. Some of the things, but of course, celebrating special days and activities like wear a purple day, activating around, you know, whether it's Mardi Gras or Sydney World Pride coming up right now, bringing people together socially and celebrating and telling the stories of people from within the LGBTIQ plus community and the people around them that love them. All of that makes a huge difference in building that support and connection in a workplace.
0: Jennifer, what have you then noticed when it comes to businesses getting bias training, robust diversity and inclusion policies and an ally network? Is it becoming more commonplace and proactive? Oh, I think, I think Corporate Australia particularly has led the way on this and they've led the way uh, for a couple of
3: reasons. One, one is just a leadership issue. I mean, it's interesting, Alan and I host a lunch of CEOs every year, Alan Joyce and I, and it's incredible who goes around that table. Like that is like Corporate Australia comes to that lunch and they take it very seriously. So I think leadership. I think the second thing that companies have been doing, and they've been doing this for a long time, is making inclusion and respect at work a fundamental business proposition, not a, you know, like they're often accused of being woke. It's not a kind of woke issue for them. It's a fundamental issue about getting the best performance out of people because they're happier, they're more productive, uh, the workplace is a better place. And then there's some of the things that Anna's talking about, you know, the training, the very clear policies, the networks are really important so very established networks so when we do the awards and we look at the categories those networks are really hugely significant and the incredible effort that some people go in those networks but that permanent continuous body that kind of gets together the role of allies is hugely important like i'm always impressed when i go into organizations and i see people with the lanyards the rainbow lanyards and i think people forget how comforting that is like i was doing an interview in Bendigo in the ABC last year and I walked into the studio early in the morning to talk about tax actually not about these sort of interesting issues and someone had the lanyard on and I just sort of it just kind of had that easing effect of sort of like I'm in a safe place I'm in an inclusive place and then to Anna's point the celebrations the celebration of Mardi Gras the celebration of pride but also I think the thing I'm encouraging and Ellen and I encouraging corporates to do is to is to not just make it a kind of once a year when you kind of deck out the the front desk and, and do something, that it's a permanent reinforcement that we want people to be themselves
0: at work and be the best they can be. The design of where and how we work is so important to help create that sense of belonging. Aubrey, when you started at Culture Amp, you created your own title, Director of Equitable Design and Impact. What did that title mean to you?
5: So I think when I bring in this idea of equitable design into the workplace, it's starting from the intention of creating equity. So I think often we think about, you know, considering the trans experience or people of color or disabled people or people who have multiple of those identities as like an afterthought, like we build it and then ask if it works for them. And I wanted to radically reimagine that and say, what if we actually make sure that the trans person of color is the first person? that we design for because we trust that it will work for the white cisgender person if we think in that way. And so that's really about design. But I also wanted to yes and all of the beautiful things that everyone else was saying. And one of the things that is really important to me in this work is I care about the belonging inclusion connection work. But one of the things that's often missed in terms of equitable design or a DEI is actually thinking about development and career progression for people from marginalized backgrounds, especially career backgrounds. And so it's great that you're observing trans day of visibility, but if you're not making sure that that trans person is going to make partner or director, it's not good enough. And so I think that's really important because one of the important ways that we you know, collectively change the world is not just about normalizing you know, queer life as something that is you know, shockingly normal throughout human history, but also that we're actually putting people from queer backgrounds in positions of power and authority in our organizations
4: creating that design from the beginning and have that inclusion and not being the afterthought because so often that is the case where there are all of these processes designed and then particularly for our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, it's like, oh, let's just slide you in here where we can fit you in and usually that's only because someone's raised it as a concern i was like oh you haven't included you know first nations people in this piece of work and was like oh well, we'll put you in here having that invitation to be part of that original design process provides that ownership provides the buy-in for that that allows that that respect and acknowledgement of of first nations people in the design and the implementation you know it's not just um for pride month it's not just for you know, the mardi gras season it's not just for nadoc week um when we do reach out and we want to have engagement we want the engagement to be purposeful and meaningful and if it's not going to be then organizations really need to then question why like what what's their inhibitors around making this purposeful like it's not just about putting up an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander flag or a, a rainbow flag for one week of the year. It's, you know, I'm black and queer all, all year long. So, you know, I would love the support all year long. So reach out to me any day of the year.
0: And Aubrey, building on this, what are the key principles of design that you use right at the outset rather than as an afterthought, as Shane has alluded to?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I always think there's like four design principles for equitable design. So I work off the idea of consent, designing for the margin, relying on the community's wisdom, and then always taking a progressive or iterative approach. So if you can implement those four design principles, but something I'm really excited about right now is neurodiverse accessibility. Um, and I think this overlaps with career issues because we know that, for example, trans folks are more likely to be autistic or otherwise neurodivergent. So there's a lot of crossover there. Um, but one of the things we're looking at at Culture imp is how do we make our policies accessible for people with learning differences or neurodivergence? And so how can we... We offer written policies that are accessible to screen readers, but also providing audio or visual overviews of those policies for people who learn or take in information differently. When we design for those folks who are on the margin, or have the more unique experience, we're actually designing better solutions that benefit everyone. And so equitable design helps us get out of this trade off of whose experience do we cater for, that it doesn't work in reverse. If we design for the majority, we end up leaving people out and we don't have to.
0: And Aubrey, what helped you when you were starting out to make you feel more comfortable at work as a queer woman?
5: I can't tell you how powerful it is, you know. For me, when I was more junior in my career, to look up and like see a queer person who was like running a department, and I was like, "Oh, I could do that." And so, I think that's it. Is for those of us that have the ability, simply living out loud can be a radical act, but it can also create so much safety for so more people. I mean, I think about reflecting on the stories here. I've never not been out at work, and every time I think about that, all I can think about is the people who came before me that paved the way and create the space that made that possible. And I think we can each in our own way contribute to that chain that opens the space wider and wider for every generation.
4: Yeah, I agree with Aubrey's statement. I was at uni and I didn't think anything of it. I knew I was gay and I wanted everyone to know I was gay and I had no issues telling everyone. And I gave up to give a presentation, introduced myself, Shane, gay man, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, And after that presentation, I had this woman come up to me and like quite tearful and said that she really respected the fact that i could acknowledge my sexuality so openly because she never has been able to and by the end of that semester she had come out and was living her more genuine life as this beautiful lesbian woman that she always was but just never felt the courage to be able to let people know so that was when i realized for me that having that story and telling it out loud has an impact and resonates with a lot of people that you just don't, you know, when you're thinking of it as yourself, you don't see that and you don't see that level of influence that you have by saying your story out loud.
0: Thank you both. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hear your messages about how we can be better allies. Well, I think think the key is to
3: always put yourself in other people's shoes. And I think we've lost that sense in our society of a bit of kindness and a bit of empathy. Uh, and then my second piece of advice is don't overcorrect. I think you know you've got to make everybody feel comfortable at work, and so I I sort of think we've got to always be careful about things like the pronoun issue. We've got to remember that somebody doesn't want to feel oh I don't know what to call that person. Uh, I'm nervous now. I know I don't feel very comfortable. We've got to make sure that inclusion is for everyone, and and that we're very careful and sensitive uh, to everybody's feelings about or the workplace has to be safe and inclusive for everybody.
4: Big believer in you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't know, ask. And don't be frightened to ask. Like, there has, I suppose, there's a big fear out there of, like, political correctness. People are now becoming frightened that if if they don't know, they're not going to ask the question, not because they don't want to seem silly, but because they're frightened of getting it wrong and they're frightened of being yelled at and and being corrected and, and chastised about it. So I suppose my message would be, you know, You don't know what you don't know. So if you don't know, ask and educate yourself. And if you do know, then you're responsible for the teaching of that.
5: I think my piece of advice is whatever you walk by is what you deem acceptable, especially if you're an ally and you see someone making a joke at a a transgender person's expense. It is your values if you don't say something and step in. But I think for leaders of organizations, that also means you have to define what you're willing to tolerate.
0: And for Ryan, being a good ally means bringing everyone to the table and providing opportunities,
1: enabling others' voices to be heard. Would love to see kind of more trans people having opportunities in kind of senior leadership roles in law, in in business, in in medicine. You know, I do think that the kind of structural disadvantage that that many trans people face mean that we're not yet seeing people flow into leadership roles. Um, who can then have organisational-wide impact or, you know, broad impact.
2: Work should really be a safe haven for everyone. We need to create workplaces that include, accept and celebrate everyone in the community. And that looks different for everyone in the community because there's so much difference out there. But that difference and diversity is so incredibly valuable and something that should be cherished.
0: Thanks to my guests and to producer Zoe Ferguson. This Working Life is made on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. And if you're making it to the Sydney World Pride this fortnight, we hope you have a fabulous celebration. Until next time, work it, baby.